We've probably all seen the pictures before. Pictures of children in some far-off country that are so obviously starved that their bones are sticking out and you feel like you can see right through them. Or the picture of the homeless man sleeping under the overpass on a cold and snowy night, hoping that the cardboard and newspaper protecting him from the elements will keep him alive one more night. As I thought about starting this lesson, I thought about starting with pictures like that. But I didn't. And I could have gone with a long list of stats. Statistics that prove that we, those of us in this room right now, are some of the richest people in the world. Stats about the number of people on the globe who live in less than $5 a day. and Stats that show how we as Americans give only the tiniest percent of our income to alleviate suffering in our world. But, but I didn't do that either. I, I thought about starting with some, some opening story that's super heartwarming about the, the joy of giving and, and, and an opportunity for, for what it feels like when we give to somebody who is deeply in need or the way a person felt like they were at the end of their own rope and somebody stepped up to help them and it changed everything. I could have started with a story like that. I could have started with any of those things. And there wouldn't have been anything wrong with it if I did. You see, those images, those statistics, those stories, they're real things. In many cases, they're real people that have meaning and value. And yet the reason I didn't choose to start there with the pictures and the stats and the stories is that inevitably they don't change us at the core. Sure, they can motivate us momentarily. They can perhaps stir our emotions or fill us with guilt or increase our desire to change. But as I told you a couple of weeks ago when we began this four-week series on biblical financial responsibilities, that our purpose is not to guilt anyone. It's not to give a motivational lecture, nor is it to pressure anyone into doing anything. Our purpose in this series is to engage with the Bible and allow it to tell us what is true so that we can honestly determine whether or not we will align ourselves with what it says. And in this series that we're calling Supporting My Family, we've been using Acts chapter 20 verses 34 and 35 as our focus verse. It's going to come up on the screens Um, And I know it's long, but I want us to recite this all together. Here we go. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, Paul, who is the speaker in this statement, is saying that our income, what we bring in, is designed to meet needs in three very specific spheres of life. And each sphere comes with a very specific financial responsibility attached to it. 
In other words, our responsibility as followers of Christ is to first have a plan to meet the needs in these three areas before we worry about supplying our own personal wants. Paul first says, these hands of mine have supplied my own needs. And so we began in week one with the first financial responsibility, which is to meet my own needs by my own work so that others don't have to. And we talked at length in week one about work and why the Bible requires it of every believer if he or she is physically and emotionally capable. It requires us to meet our own needs by our own work. The Bible is clear that this is our first financial responsibility, to be self-sufficient. This will keep others from having to support us personally, and it will allow the, the kindness and the generosity and the benevolence of those in the church to meet the needs of people who really need it. But Paul also said, these hands of mine have worked to meet the needs of my companions. Who were his companions? We talked last week about people like Luke and Timothy and Titus and Barnabas, these men who traveled the world with Paul, setting up churches. Effectively, they were doing the work of the church. They were Paul's church family. And we saw that our second financial responsibility is to support those who spiritually support me. In other words, at some level, there is a responsibility for all of us to play an active role in participating in the life of the church financially. Simply put, those of us who are benefiting from the teaching and the worship and the service and the evangelism opportunities made available by the church are responsible to provide for the church. Rather than cultivating a consumer mindset about what happens here on Sunday, well, I go there because I get something out of it, we come with a contributor mindset willing and able to help provide the needs of the church family. But Paul didn't stop there. His final comment about his income that resulted from his hard work says this, in everything I did, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. In other words, he's saying when I work and when you work and we make money for our labor, our primary responsibilities are to support our own needs, to support our spiritual supporters, and to be prepared to support those who cannot support themselves. It is a responsibility for all Christians to meet the, no, the needs of those in need. And it is to that end that we will turn our attention to one of Jesus' final teachings to his apostles. He was just a couple of days from his very public execution when his disciples came to him and they asked him when he was going to come set up his kingdom because at this point they were, they were still very much in the mind of believing that he was coming to set up an earthly political kingdom. And so they asked him, when are you going to come and when are you going to set up your kingdom and what's it going to be like? And in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, he answers that question and, and 
what we're going to do is we're going to look at the very end of his answer today. The final piece. Now, before we dive into this section, I just want to honestly state that this is a challenging passage, and it will require much of us today. And I say that really for three reasons. Number one, the truths contained in this section of Scripture are difficult, and they will require a certain amount of self-evaluation from each of us. I assure you that if you pay attention seriously to this passage and you take it literally as Jesus meant it, that it will hold up a mirror in front of all of us today. And it will ask us to look inside and say, am I aligned with that or not? Do I believe that or not? Do I trust that or not? Secondly, I say that this this passage is challenging because it contains three of the major doctrines that come out of the Bible, that we are most uncomfortable to talk about. This section of Scripture is going to to bring up three issues from the Bible that we find most difficult to deal with in American Christianity. Money, judgment, and hell. Those three topics are all raised in one spot in the Bible. And Jesus will confront us with these issues, and he will not allow us to act as if those realities don't exist. And finally, I say that this passage is difficult because it is very often misunderstood. I have actually seen this passage yanked out of context, put on a meme on social media, and used to demean or condemn people for political purposes or for social justice purposes. This passage is often misused and abused in the process of achieving personal or political ends. And to that end, please understand that as we approach this topic, our purpose today is to read it, to digest it, and to really understand it and its implications so that we can honestly evaluate ourselves and our attitudes toward those who are in need with these truths in mind. Our passage today is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. We're going to dive right in today. Verse 31 begins with this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on his glorious throne. Now let's stop here for a minute and remember the context of what we're talking about. Jesus was asked by his disciples when he was going to come and what that was going to be like, and this is his answer, or at least part of his answer. He says, so when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So the first thing that we need to do is figure out who he's talking about and what's going on. All right? When Jesus refers to the Son of Man, the first thing that we have to note is that he is referencing himself. This is Jesus. The Son of Man is Jesus, right? This is a term that Jesus, in fact, used 80 times to refer to himself in just the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So an average of 20 times per gospel, he calls himself the Son of Man. It was his preferred term for himself when he was kind of speaking in the third person, right? 
And you may, you may find that interesting because so often when you go to church and you, and you listen to people talk about Jesus, they really refer to him as the son of who? God. But he referred to himself as the son of man. This is very fascinating. Very rarely did he refer to himself as the son of God. He referred to himself as the son of man quite simply because it was a humble moniker for who he was at that particular time. Think about it. He was God in human form. God in the flesh. He was one of us. And so he chose to assign to himself a label that identified with every single one of us. You think about it. You're a son of or daughter of man. Every single one of us. And so when Jesus came into the world, instead of going, hey, I'm the son of God, everybody, you should listen to what I say. He said, I'm the son of man. Watch what I do and it'll prove that I'm the son of God. So the son of man is Jesus. But notice what it says. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So he will sit on a throne, which means who sits on a throne? A king. A king sits on a throne. And what does a king do? He rules. A king rules. And a king judges. So the Son of Man is Jesus, but Jesus is also the king. So as we read the rest of this passage, as we see the word king come up, he's talking about himself. This is actually one of the first times in Scripture that he refers to himself on his kingly level. To this point, he's referred to himself as Son of Man almost primarily. But this is really one of the first times in all of Scripture we see him call himself the king. And when it says he comes in his glory, what we're referring to is very specifically Jesus' second coming. Jesus' second coming. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the Bible, this will be review. But for those of you that are maybe not so familiar with the story of the Bible, this is, this is really what, it, it, what we learn about Jesus. Jesus was born into the world as a human child, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. He was God, but he was born as a human being, and we celebrate that at Christmas. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He was falsely tried and condemned for claiming to be God, and he died on the cross to forgive each and every one of us our sins and rose from the dead on the third day. That's what we celebrate at Easter. But then after he rose from the grave. He promised that he would be leaving to go be with the Father, but he would one day return, come back, and settle things on this earth. He would return, he would come back, and he would bring his people to be with him. That is the, that is the second coming that we refer to, or Jesus' return. You may have heard these terms before. Christians talk about them often. So when you put these statements together, what we're seeing in this first verse is very simply this. When Jesus comes back, he's coming back as a king who will rule, he will sit on his throne, and he will judge. Notice, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him. So his first act will be to bring everybody on the earth all together. His, his first act will be to bring us all together. Boy, that sounds nice, doesn't it? We're finally going to be one big group. We're finally going to be on the same page, right? And then he immediately divides them into two groups. 
He will gather all the people before him, so he'll bring us all together. And then his immediate next step is to separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Well, maybe that doesn't sound so nice, does it? (laughs) Well, it's sort of good because he's gathering everybody together, but now he's separating everybody into two groups. Why? He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, it says. And the sheep, you have to understand in this story, are those who are connected with Christ. These are the servants of Jesus. We'll see this through the rest of the, the story that he tells These are the servants of Jesus. Those attached to him in relationship, you could very effectively call these the saved. If you want to write that in your margin, you can. These are the saved. The sheep are the saved. And on the other side are are those who are the goats. Goats are those who are apart from Jesus. You could very easily call them the unsaved. And notice what he does. He he divides them into two groups. So he puts all the sheep in one group, and he puts them over to his right. He puts all the goats on one side, and he puts them on his left. And notice what he says to the sheep. All right, so he starts with the sheep. So he starts addressing the people that are his servants. Notice what he says. The king will say to those on his right, come. Stop there. Come. Come. Boy, that's a big word, isn't it? Jesus has, Jesus has an opportunity to speak to all of his people, and his first word is, come. Come to me. Come be with me. Come near me. I want you with me. I want you to notice something. This verse right here, I've isolated it for a reason. This single verse is the key to understanding the entire rest of the passage. If you miss on this verse, you will miss the whole rest of the thing. We have to understand what he's saying to the sheep. Because if we miss on this, we will misinterpret the rest of the passage and horribly abuse its meaning. Okay? He says, come. Why? Why do they get to come? You who are blessed by my Father. You might want to circle that phrase. You who are blessed by my Father. Well, why, were they, why were they the blessed of the Father? He goes on. He says, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So why were they the blessed of the Father? What makes these people different than those people? Why are there sheep and goats? Why aren't they all in the same group? What makes these folks separated from these folks? Well, first and foremost, we have to go back to Genesis. Why are these the blessed of the Father? First of all, God created them. God created everyone. He made us And initially, if you go back and you read the book of Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve, he created us for a very specific, loving, unending relationship with him. God created mankind, he put them in the Garden of Eden, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, 
fill the earth and subdue it and rule on my behalf and you will be with me and I will be with you. I will be your God. You will be with me. And there was nothing that was going to break that relationship unless they voluntarily gave it away. And we see in Genesis chapter 3 that man sinned and they gave up that immediate closeness with God. They gave up that relationship that they initially had with God, and every single one of us, all of us, you, me, everybody, has done the same thing. All right, guys, here's the truth of this passage, and we have to understand it at a deep level. We reject our inheritance by sin. We reject our inheritance by sin. There is an inheritance that was made for us before the creation of the world, before we were ever founded, before we ever came along, before the earth ever happened. God made us, and he created a situation in which we would have the potential for an unending, loving relationship with him. That is our inheritance. And when we choose to sin and choose that which is not God, we give that inheritance away. We reject our inheritance by sin and we receive it. We receive it through our faith in Christ. Every one of us, through our sin, our pride, our misplaced anger, our greed, our lustful, envious, unloving behavior, have given up our inheritance to an everlasting, loving relationship with God. We have all done it. But by placing our faith in Christ, we receive that inheritance back. And so Jesus is looking at these sheep and he's saying, by your faith, you are the blessed of the Father because you have received back your inheritance through the faith that you expressed in me and what I did for you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it very simply, for it is by grace you have been saved, circle these two words, through faith, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is, it, it is a gift of God, circle this phrase, not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, we don't get that inheritance back by doing enough good works. We don't get that back by anything other than Christ's death offered to us based on our belief in him that he died for our sins and our desire to make him Lord over every aspect of our lives. And God says that this inheritance, this eternal loving relationship that God created us to have was in place before the beginning of the world. That's what the world is for. When you go outside today and you look at the beautiful sky and you see the sun out in the sky and you see the the beautiful hills around this area, right? God made that as a place for us to have a loving eternal relationship with him. That's why he made it. That was the purpose for this whole creation. That's the purpose of your life. You were made for that inheritance, but so often we choose by our sin to give it up. See, that was the point of it all. And like I said before, it's super important before we move forward in this passage, one more word for us to remember that The only thing that returns our inheritance is not our works, but it is the work of Christ on our behalf. A failure to get this results in seriously bad interpretation of the remainder of this text. So Jesus goes on and he's talking to his sheep. He says this, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Notice, he he points out six particular issues. Hunger, thirst, estrangement, inadequate clothing, sickness, and imprisonment. And he says to those who he calls righteous, the sheep, the servants of Christ, he says to them, this is how you acted with regard to these issues toward me. Now let's stop for a second. Do you see why verse 34 is so important? Do you see why verse 34 holds the key for the rest of this passage? Because here's the deal. You can very easily read verses 35 and 36, and many people do, as proof that if you're a good person and you care for the poor and you do enough good stuff that you'll earn being in heaven. I can't tell you how many internet memes I saw this past week as I was doing a bunch of research on this topic that that point at very much that. Hey, Jesus said to, to take care of the poor, and if you don't, then by golly, you're not a Christian at all. But if you go and do nice things for the poor, then, hey, your spot in heaven is safe. That's not what this passage is saying. You see, Jesus brings up these issues, and he brings up the actions of the righteous as evidence for the saving faith that they already had. They already believed, and that was the driving force behind their behavior. You see, this this brings us to a principle of Scripture that runs through the entirety of the Bible, all right? Lived compassion, in other words, obvious outward shows of compassion and love and generosity towards others, lived compassion for those in need is the natural result and proof of our salvation. It's just the natural result of our salvation, in other words, when, when, when we realize what Jesus did for us, and we realize the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, it's just a natural result. It comes pouring out of us, right? And it's the proof of our salvation. In other words, it's the evidence that shows that we are the kind of people who truly believe in Jesus and what he did for us. Let me take you to a couple of passages, one in the Old Testament, one in the New, to prove that this is not just some isolated issue with Jesus, or this is not just some isolated issue in the New New Testament. This is Bible cover to cover. Lived compassion for those in need is the natural result and proof of our salvation. Look at Proverbs 29, 7. The righteous, circle that phrase, the righteous. Who are the righteous and what do they do? The righteous is a code word in Scripture for those who are in a right relationship with God. Okay? Sounds like saved people to me, doesn't it? (laughs) The righteous. Notice what it says. Care about justice for the poor. You see, they aren't just focused on meeting a momentary physical or personal need, although they do that. They're also desiring to see the poor treated with justice and kindness. It's the desire of the righteous to see the poor have an opportunity to be lifted out of poverty if they will be. But notice it goes on to say, the wicked have no such concern. 
In other words, when, when our heart is, is designed toward everything not God, and we are going in an evil direction, concern about other people and concern about their needs and concern about their problems is not our primary focus. So that's the Old Testament, guys. That says, it says that in the Old Testament, that righteous people care about the situation that is afflicting the poor. But then there's the New Testament, 1 John chapter 3. This is the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest followers. He said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. In other words, if you want to know what love is, look at Jesus dying on the cross for you. That's what love is. And then he goes on, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. In other words, if we look at Jesus and we see him dying for us and him taking care of our needs and him taking care of our sin, our natural response ought to be to lay down our lives and our needs and our material possessions and our things so that other people can live. He goes on, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, notice this question. How can the love of God be in that person? If we can look on the problems and the issues afflicting other people in our lives and and not care, have no stirring of the heart, have no desire to see those people helped, he says, how can the love of God be in that person? And then he finishes with this, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You see, what John says is very simple. How can the love of God be in a person if they look at the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf and have no compulsion to be generous and kind and loving to others? Can it really be there? Can we really be people of deep faith if that is our response to what Jesus did for us? But Jesus' story continues. Notice this. He says, the righteous will answer him. So so the sheep, he's talking to the sheep and he's been saying, you did all this cool stuff. And the sheep will look back at Jesus and say, "Um, Lord, (laughs) when? When do we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? They're they're like, Jesus, when do we do that? I mean, think about it. It's been 2,000 years approximately since Jesus said this, and he hasn't come back yet, so there have been a whole heck of a lot of people that believed that Jesus really was who he said he was and believed that they were Christians and they were following God and they were reading the Bible and they were trying to live a life of faith. And Jesus was never on the earth in bodily form for any of that. And they're looking at Jesus at this moment of judgment and they're saying, uh, I don't really remember doing that for you. <laughs> um, uh, you weren't even actually here um, for me to do that for you. When did we do this? When you think about it, it's a super humble response, right? They're like, Jesus, hey, you know, thanks for the credit, but I don't even remember doing it. And the king will look at them and say, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, circle this phrase, 
brothers and sisters of mine. You did it for me. In other words, Jesus says, when you did it for one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. It counted as if you did it for me. It mattered as if you did it for me. Now, this phrase, my brothers and sisters, can be interpreted fairly reasonably in two ways. First and foremost, since Jesus was a human being and he was speaking at this moment as God in human flesh, and because we are all part of the same human family, it could be reasonably interpreted that he's meaning anybody who is a person and you did uh, some act of blessing or kindness or generosity on their behalf, that it was as if it was done for him. Okay? That, that's, a, that's a very possible interpretation of this text. But Jesus often uses the phrase brothers and sisters to refer more often to his status as the head of the church, referring to brothers and sisters as those who are a part of the church, therefore the family of God. And there are a couple of other passages in the New Testament that point this idea out, like Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says this, both the one who makes people holy, that's God and Christ, right? Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy, in other words, those people who believe in Jesus and are therefore seen as holy in his sight, are of the same family. In other words, when we accept Christ and what he has done for us and we have that faith that saves, we are considered as a part of the family of God. Notice what it says. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers brothers. Or Galatians 6.10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, notice this phrase, let us do good to all people. In other words, anybody, everywhere, all the time, let's be good to all people, especially, circle that word, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. All right, so when you boil all of this down, everything that he said to the sheep thus far, we come to this very simple principle, and it is our financial responsibility number three. And that is this. We are called to humbly meet the needs of those who can't meet their own needs because Christ first did it for us. Financial responsibility number three for all Christians everywhere at all times is to humbly meet the needs of those who can't meet their own needs because Christ first did it for us us. Once we've become self-sufficient and we've taken appropriate steps to support the church family that is supporting us, then our third sphere of responsibility is to become disciplined in humbly meeting the needs of people around us who can't meet their own needs. But for a moment, I want to just stop and I want to focus on the end of that phrase, because Christ first did it for us. Let me be real clear here. We do not do these kinds of things, and we do not act in generous ways to prove that we are a good person. We do these things because Jesus first did it for us. Think about this passage, and think about what he said to the sheep, and then think about Jesus' life. Because we're Christians, right? And we believe that Jesus left heaven. He left heaven. 
to come into a world full of people who were hungry for the truth of God. And he came and he fed us his word. We believe that Jesus left heaven to a world full of people who were thirsty for an outpouring of God and thirsty for the words that he might say to us. And he came. And he allowed us to drink from his living water. We are people who believe that we were estranged from God because of our sin and transgression. And he left heaven to be where we are. We were separate and he came close. We are people who believe that that we were clothed in our sin. And he traded those clothes out for clothes of his righteousness. We are a people who believe that we were sick because of the consequences of our sin. And he made a way for us to be healed by sacrificing himself on the cross for every single one of us. We are people who believe that when we were imprisoned by chains of addiction, patterns of sin, locked in selfishness that was complete, He was the one who came back from the dead to prove that no chain can hold down anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. You see, what naturally flows out of our belief is gratitude for what he has done. We believe it's true. And we do for others what he did for us. You see, it's only when we truly grasp what Jesus did for us that we can be able to give freely and to show compassion and kindness without fearing our own lack of provision. I'm going to say that again. It's only when we grasp what Jesus first did for us that we will be able to freely and compassionately give without fear of a lack of our own provision. Because we know what he's already done for us and we trust what he's already done for us. Now certainly at G&G we give you guys all kinds of opportunities to serve those in need. Things like the Haiti Child Sponsorship where for 20 bucks a month you can provide food and clothing and an education for a child in Haiti or the Christmas free sales or other outreach and service opportunities we do through the year. And yes, those are important things. But my encouragement for you today isn't for all of you to try to run out and give your money to a bunch of poor people. The last thing I want, and I'm I'm telling you the truth here from my heart to yours, the last thing I want is for any of you to walk out of here today feeling guilty about what you haven't done, Or feeling like you have to go do some major act in order to prove that you are somebody who's already saved. That's not the point. My encouragement to all of us today is to assess whether or not we truly believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did what he said he came to do. Because if we believe with every fiber of our being that Jesus loved us enough to do it for us, then we'll be generous in ways we never expected because Jesus changed us. You won't have to worry about whether or not you're going to do it. You just will because Jesus has changed you. It's not because you changed you. It's not because you became a good enough person. It's not because you had enough discipline. It's because Christ, through you, serves others. Guys, I don't want anybody in this room 
I don't want anybody in this room to feel like this lesson is about adding to your moral to-do list. That's not the point. I don't want anybody to walk out of this room today and feel like they need to be loaded down with guilt for all the things that they haven't done and all the people they haven't helped. There is more than enough grace in our God to cover anything and everything we have or have not done. But the reality is when we believe at that core level what Jesus has done for us, the natural outflow is that we will do it for others. Not because we have to. Because it's just what we do. And now, as you might say, the parable takes a dark turn. Because Jesus turns to those on his left, the goats. Then he will say to those on his left, notice the first word, depart. Remember what he said to the sheep? Come. Come. But to the goats, he looks at them and says, depart. Go away from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire. Make no mistake, he is talking about hell. It is everlasting. There is no question about that in the Bible. He says, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire. I want you to notice this phrase, prepared for the devil and his angels. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Remember that inheritance, that eternal loving relationship with God that, that, that we were given just by being human beings, that we had available to us just because God made us that, that eternal loving inheritance? Well, there was an inheritance as well for those who rebelled against God. Satan and his demons. It was prepared for them as a place of punishment for their willing rebellion against God. It was prepared for them. It was not prepared for us. And yet we may choose to go there if we so will. It was prepared for the devil and his angels, but it can be a place where we choose to go. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. I want you to notice something really important in this phrase. He said, you never did this, and there's a really important phrase, for me. You never did this for me. He didn't say you never did it. Now get this, guys. And let's be honest. There are a lot of people in our world who do a lot of good things. There are a lot of people in our world that are motivated to, to actually attack the six things that Jesus was talking about, right? Right? hunger, thirst, and all that good stuff. There are a lot of people in our world today that are super motivated to go out there and make a difference in those areas. But Jesus says to them, the focus of your effort was not me. In other words, very simply, they didn't do them for Christ. They didn't do them from a place of love and gratitude for what he did for them. He was never their center. He was never their focus. He was never their reason. And as such, 
While we in the world might look at this person and say, wow, you're doing a lot of great work. Apart from Christ, Jesus says, you can do nothing of eternal importance. You see, Jesus is making a very clear statement. We can do all the good we want to do, and we can try to make a personal difference in people's lives on this earth, all we want to, but apart from Christ, it means nothing. And I want to I poke at that for a moment. You see, what does a Christian have that somebody else doesn't have when they give in benevolence like that? A Christian has a soul-deep understanding that they had no right to anything from God, but God, by his grace and love, poured out compassion upon them, and so they do it, not because they're trying to be a good person, not because they're trying to prove to the world that they can do good things, not because they're trying to change the world, but they're just simply trying to be more like the one who already saved them. You see, when people apart from Christ do really nice things, and make no mistake, they do really nice things in the world, but the motivation at core, when you dig all the way to the bottom, is I want to prove I'm a good person. I want to prove that I can do nice things. I want to show the world I'm worthy of respect because I do this nice thing for somebody else. I'm sorry, when you dig all the way to the bottom, apart from Christ, our Good actions are selfishly motivated. That's the truth. And if you and I dig enough to the bottom of our hearts, we'll know that's true. Because we've seen us do it. And therein lies, I think, the greatest obstacle to what you and I face to serving those in need. You see, it's not our lack of self-sufficiency because quite often the most generous people in our world are the poorest. If you actually do look at the stats, which I didn't give you, (laughs) the stats are quite simply that the poorest people in the United States of America give percentage of income far greater than those who are the wealthiest. So it's not our lack of self-sufficiency because quite often people are generous even when they're not self-sufficient. And it's not even the questions that we ask ourselves sometimes. Because you, know, you, you, you hear questions, I hear questions, you probably ask yourself these questions. Well, how many times do I have to serve people? I mean, how, I mean, how much of my income do I have to give away? How many times do I have to show up in this person's life and help them? I don't, you know, those are, those are reasonable questions, guys. They're reasonable questions. And there's, there are things you should think about, but the reality is that's not the biggest obstacle. You see, the biggest obstacle to supporting those in need is trying to do good works without Christ as a method of self-salvation, as a method of proving to ourselves and to the world and to God that we deserve to be in heaven, we're going to go out and do a bunch of good things. That's the single greatest obstacle we will ever face because the reality is we will never be able to sustain that pace if we're constantly trying to prove that we can be good enough for God. We'll never sustain it, we'll never keep it up, and it will never be anything more than selfishly motivated. It's the greatest obstacle we face. 
And notice, notice what the, what, what the goats said, right? No, look at them. They, they say, Lord, they'll answer, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison that didn't help you? In other words, they're saying, hey, they're asking the same question the, 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 the sheep did. Hey, when didn't we do that? I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, you weren't here on this earth during this time, and so how could I have possibly done that for you, Jesus? I mean, what do you mean I didn't do it for you? I mean, if you had shown up and stood here, I probably would have done something for you. And he says very simply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. As the reality of this parable is that doing good things is of no value apart from Christ because it will not last into eternity and it will not make an eternal difference. You see, earlier in Matthew, Jesus stressed this very subject. <laughs> he talks about people who look like Christians. He says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who calls to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Well, let's stop there, okay? So he's looking at, he's looking at people that on the outside look like Christians. Look like people who probably go to church. Look like people who probably do good things. And he says, some of them that say, Lord, Lord, to me will not make it in. Only the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. What is that? Well, let's answer that question for heaven's sake. Well, thankfully he did. John 6, 29, Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. The only thing saving us is our belief in Christ and what he has done for us, not our good works. Jesus goes on in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles? He's going to say, well, look at you guys. You looked like you were doing good things. You, said you, were, you, you even said you were doing good things in my name. And you know what? And this is a terribly difficult statement then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. In all that good work you were doing, and even all that saying that you were doing it for me, you never had at heart the depth of belief and hope in me that drove that behavior. You were still trying to save yourself through good action. I didn't know you. Go away. And this is how the parable ends. Jesus looks at the sheep and he says, come. And he looks at the goats, regardless of how many good things they might have done, and says, go away. And he ends with a summary statement. Then they will go, that meaning the goats, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Guys, the truth is hell and heaven are real things. They are real places and every one of us will be in one or the other for eternity. Those of us trying to accumulate good works, thinking that we're going to earn heaven by being a good person, will be sorely disappointed in the end. Only those who have done the work of God, which is to believe in the one he has sent on our behalf, will then proceed to do good works from the standpoint of faith, therefore doing them for Christ. Now, guys, I want to stop to just make a quick um, pivot here to next Sunday. 
Next Sunday is kind of a special day here at G&G. It's a day that we call Decision Day. And the point of Decision Day is we're going to stop after this, you know, series. And we're going to finish it up next week. But, but we're going to kind of stop at the end of this series and take a moment to really collect ourselves, rethink what we have learned. And then we're going we're gonna to sit down to make some commitments to God and to ourselves about how we're going to respond to each of these areas that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. And there's a card that we're going to use that will help us process through these decisions, and then we will use as, as personal reminders for ourselves as we go through the, the commitment process. And, and you'll be able to view that card on our website and on Facebook uh, to help familiarize yourself with it so, so you don't have to like come in next Sunday and make a decision in three minutes like you'll have all week long to like view this card on our website and on Facebook to, to familiarize yourself with it, with it and begin to think about the decisions you want to make. But before we do that, we're actually going to do something that I think is really cool. It's a 24-hour prayer and Bible reading experience here at G&G. Um, it's going to go from the, the morning on Saturday all the way through the morning on Sunday. And uh, you can sign up for uh, a slot to read or to pray, an hour-long slot to read or to pray. And during that time, we're going to read through the entirety of the New Testament as a church family. And people are going to come in and take some time to pray. Now, you don't have to pray in front of anybody. This is not a performance thing. You don't have to read in front of anybody. You come in, you find a spot to sit down and read if you want to read. Um, and the, the, the chapters and verses will be assigned to you. Or if you want to come in and pray, you're going to get a little brochure that just kind of walks you through the building. And you're going to pray by yourself for the things on the sheet. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very personal, very private thing. But the reason that we're doing this is because we believe that if we're going to make some serious decisions about how we're going to commit to dealing with our financial um, situation with regard to the responsibilities we've learned out over the, over the last few weeks, then we need to be in prayer. And we need to have God's word kind of pouring over us in order to make wise decisions and decisions that we will commit to. So if you want to come in and be a part of that, you can sign up on your way out. Um, of the of the uh, the atrium, there's a there's a table on the other side. It shows you it shows you where you can pick slots and times and all that kind of stuff. Or you can just turn in your your connect card um, with uh, hey I'm going to come to the the 24 hour prayer and Bible reading thing and somebody will get back to you about a time and a and a slot. But guys, I left that blank on the bottom of your outline as a final as a final reminder for what we've learned today. All right, the bottom line of this lesson, if you get nothing else and you walk away with nothing else, the truth is from Scripture, Christians, people who follow Jesus, we don't show compassion to be saved. The purpose of our compassion is not to somehow earn our salvation or to prove to the world that we are the saved. We show compassion, we show love, we show generosity because we are saved. It, it's, it's, a, it's a natural result of the belief and the faith that we have in Christ that drives us to be people of generosity and goodness. And my hope and my prayer for us today is that we will choose to believe with such depth and such clarity that behavior of compassion and love and generosity can't help but pour out of us. 
God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that Jesus didn't pull any punches. And he told us exactly what he meant to tell us. He said exactly what he meant to say. And we are left to respond to it. Father, I pray that we will do that. That we will lovingly respond to what he said and do what he said, not out of some sense of guilt or duty, but out of a desire to appropriately love and thank the one who did everything for us. We thank you for this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.